Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Mark chapter 3, and as you're turning there in your Bibles, Mark chapter 3, just a reminder of what we're doing here. We're studying through the Gospel of Mark, the earliest Gospel ever written, penned from the perspective of Jesus' closest friend, the Apostle Peter. Uh, John Mark is writing it. John Mark was a disciple of Peter. Peter is giving the perspective and the angle. That's the most uh, common held perspective. One of the main reasons is obviously that Peter is mentioned in every story. Every chapter has some account of Peter being present. Now, uh, as we're looking at this book, what we're seeing is that Mark gives us a specific focus on the life of Jesus, not just the words of Jesus. We're going to study those next week on, on Palm Sunday but specifically the life and the ways of Jesus. So our series, just a reminder, has been entitled The Way. We're looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. We want to know the way of Jesus so that we don't assume his way, don't assume what he's like. Let's not assume how he lives or just, you know, basically those assumptions come from church background stuff even. Like, oh, this is what Jesus is like. It's like, well, let's, let's be receptive and teachable for a second to say, hold on, I don't know it all and I might be off, who are you really? That's such a great question to ask God, isn't it? God, who are you really? Like, there's who I think you are. There's who I assume you to be. There's the way that I assume Jesus would do something. I feel like I hear that a lot today. Like, Jesus would do this. You know, WWJD. It's like, well, what would Jesus do? Let's read the Gospel of Mark, right? So uh, that's what we're doing. We're studying the way of Jesus, ultimately, too, so that we could go the way of Jesus as his followers. And so uh, this morning... As I said, Mark chapter 3, and I'm going to invite you to stretch out your kneecaps and stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word. Then you'll be seated, we'll study the Bible, we'll eat some Cuban food, it's going to be a good time. All right. Let's read together. Mark chapter 3, our reading today comes from verses 20 down to the end of the chapter there in verse 35. If you don't have the Bible, the verses will be up on the screen. Let's give attention to God's word here together. Mark 3, verse 20 says this. Then the multitude came together again, so that they, Jesus and his disciples, could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If, the, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has... An end, he surely does. Verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, verse 28, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. Thank God. And whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, 
but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And the multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who's my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord, to which we say, thanks be to God. Father, we thank you truly this morning for the gift of your word um, that shows us in truth who you are. And, and today, God, today's no different in, in terms of what Sunday's been about for us as a community since we've started. We're, we're gathering here, Jesus in need of you, in need of your work in our lives, this work that you do in our lives corporately. You're so faithful, we sang about it, to work in our lives individually, and we want to continue to be open to that each day. But right now, we've, we've given you the space together as your church, as your people, and we're coming to you with one heart, with a desire collectively that says, God, work in our midst here. Speak to us as a church family. Uh, use your word and, and the power of your Holy Spirit today. Here's our prayer, God, that you would realign us with you. If there's anything today that's out of alignment, misaligned, we invite your Holy Spirit to bring the alignment we need, to straighten us on the course you have for us, for your glory, God, and for, thankfully, God, our good. We thank you for that gift. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to keep speaking Keep manifesting your presence here. Uh, we are those here that say, come Holy Spirit. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We don't speak against you. We invite you. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Have your way and speak to us. We glorify you, God, for what you've done, and we pray you'd work today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, on this uh, four-year day of celebration, four-year anniversary celebration, it's, it's just so perfect that this is the passage that the Lord has us studying. And as unusual as that may sound, because this is a unique passage about who Jesus' true family is, he's like dissing his mom in this passage, you know, it seems like, right? He's teaching you how to, how to do a, a breaking and entering successfully, right? This is an interesting passage. He's talking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but... Uh, each week, we're looking at these passages ultimately to see the way of Jesus. And if there's one characteristic of the way of Jesus that we want to study this morning, it's this. It's the way that Jesus aligned. The way that Jesus aligned. Now, I'm not talking today about the way that Jesus positionally or politically aligned. That's not what I'm saying today. Today's not a sermon on the politics of Jesus. Welcome to church. That would be fun, all right? We're not talking about it. This is a big buzzword, isn't it, today? Like, where do you align? Who do you align with? Do you align with this corporation? Do you align, who, who do you align with at the Oscars? Which guy? You know, it's like, it's, a, it's kind of easy, but it's kind of like a popular phrase that we use to describe what side of the divide are you on. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about today with Jesus. We're not trying to show which position or side of the aisle or wherever Jesus aligned on. But we're not talking about how Jesus aligned positionally. What we're talking about here is more in a verb tense, how Jesus aligned people's lives practically. 
how he aligned them, how he sought to bring them into alignment. Specifically in this passage, it's a group of people, two groups specifically, who are coming to Jesus misaligned with him. They're not in line with him. They're out of line. Uh, It's his, interesting, it's his most common foes, the Pharisees or the scribes. We're used to them. The religious leaders are often out of line and misaligned with Jesus, especially their own views of him. But what might be a little harder to um, kind of imagine is you also have in this passage Jesus' own family being misaligned with Jesus. And in this passage, what we see is sort of with these two groups, the Pharisees and his family, we see this like battle of alignment, this misalignment showdown, where in, in a sad way, these groups are trying to do everything to get Jesus to conform to their ideas. They're trying to get Jesus to align with them, where ultimately that one of the main purposes of why Jesus came was to fix a misaligned humanity and realign them with God. And that's really kind of two ways to approach God. You can either get him to align with you, isn't that true? Try to force him into your box, try to conform him to your image and your ideas, or you can, in humility, allow God to be God and allow him to do the work where he aligns us with him aligns us with what's right. Now, that's certainly what we should jump on, especially because of the description of humanity in Scripture. It it doesn't give humanity a lot of opportunity to assume that we're in the right. In fact, when when humanity is described in Scripture, one of the the words that's used to describe our fallen state is the word crooked. Have you ever read that in Scripture? The crookedness of a crooked and perverse generation. The idea is that things aren't going well with humanity. Uh, Humanity is not bent towards what's right. I don't wake up in and out of, you know, out of bed each morning bent towards being right in the Lord and doing the right things. I wake up bent selfishly often with myself and my needs and my priorities on my mind. And this is true with me as I'm walking with Jesus filled with his spirit. And this was certainly true of me before I gave my life to Jesus. The human tendency is misalignment. You know, Jesus comes to realign us with God. He's like a mechanic right? Or better yet, a chiropractor, a spiritual one, the great physician, right? He comes to fix what's off with us. That misalignment that we've had in our lives has come from turning away from God and going our own way. One of the descriptions of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, it says this about the, the, the voice of, the, of John the Baptist. It says, he's the one crying in the wilderness, right? He's preparing the way of the Lord. This is from Isaiah. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. This is one of the things the Messiah is going to do. And the rough ways will be smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the ministry of the Messiah. He's going to take that which is crooked and bring salvation. He's going to take that which is crooked and make it straight. He's going to align a misaligned humanity. That's what Jesus comes to do. Of course, in this passage, unfortunately, we see some conflict with that. And it's sinful. It's the nature of the heart to do what we want instead of what he has for us. Uh, This is not something new, though. This is not just like something that Jesus is encountering for the first time or that God is with the Pharisees. This has been the story of God throughout history. Like God's journey with Israel has always been like, listen, if you align with me, it's going to go better for you and your neighbors and the whole world. 
I mean, this is from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Like, follow me and it'll go well. If you misalign with me, do your own thing. It's going to break apart and things are going to get bad. And it has. There's a verse in the book of Amos where God is speaking to this with Israel. There are some major disagreements between Israel and God, at least with how they're living. One display is saying, this is what I think the best life looks like, or this is what I think God is like, and the other is the truth. And God says this to them in Amos 3.3. Have you ever read this? God says to Israel, what a great question for God to ask us. Can two walk together if they're not in agreement, unless they are agreed? Now, we might answer that and say, isn't that marriage? You know what I'm saying? Like, hello. It's like, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out, actually, you know. Believe it or not, Brittany and I don't always agree. Okay, she always agrees with me, obviously, but you know, my side, you know. Now, on a smaller scale, of course, I mean, this is a part of life, but what God is talking about here is big fundamental things, big areas of disagreement. There are, there are certain levels of disunity and disagreement that will break fellowship. We saw that uh, earlier in, the, in Mark when we looked at uh, Paul and Barnabas. You remember that? That was a big one. Now, what about in a relationship with God, though? There's some relationships that it doesn't matter what the area of disagreement is. It's the role of the person and the person who's disagreeing with them. Like if an officer pulls me over because I was speeding, my disagreement doesn't matter. I disagree, officer. I disagree with that law. It's like, well, good for you. Here's your ticket, okay? It's like, okay. We're not going to be able to walk together in unity there because of the nature of the relationship. Now, how much so with, with, with the God of the universe who knows all, who created all, who's the source of all. How, listen, how can you and I walk in harmony with God if we're not aligned with him? How can we walk in harmony with God if our lives are out of line, if we're doing our own thing, going our own way? That's breaking fellowship with God. What Jesus comes to do is say, hey, here's where you're going, but I've got a better path. Let me realign you with God. And that's what he's seeking to do here in this passage. You know, I prayed that in the beginning because that's what we seek to do here each and every Sunday morning. We, we, we come here and we say, God, we acknowledge as human creatures that we are bent towards misalignment. Realign us, God. Use your spirit, gift us with your word, and help us along the path that you're setting for us. Um, in this passage, as Jesus is... Seeking to align those who are misaligned with him, we see three specific things that he is aligning. And these three things that he's aligning in this passage with those that are coming against him are the same three things that I believe he still is trying to align in us today. And I think these are really helpful things for us as a church, celebrating four years of God's work. I can't think of something that we should pray for more as a community heading on into the days ahead than God Help us continue to go your way. And God, keep us from going astray. I mean, I mean, that's been our heart from the very beginning. I'm not saying we do this perfectly, by the way. I'm saying we need Jesus to come close to this. We need a grace to, to truly, listen, as a church, to truly be soulless church. To have Jesus at the center of our community. We, we need God to, to be regularly at work in our lives, realigning us. That, that's our prayer. God, would you continue to align us with you as we continue to serve you as a church? Amen? We don't want to do our own thing. We don't want to go our own way. Help us align with you. Here's three ways that he's faithful to do that. We see that in the passage. We first see how he aligns our minds with God's truth. That's the first thing we see in this passage. We see the ministry of Jesus in aligning minds, thought systems, belief systems with what's true. 
There's opinions in this passage, and then there's truth in this passage. Those opinions of Jesus' family and the Pharisees, the scribes, are coming into contest with the truth of Jesus. And we see Jesus here, as they're coming against him, seeking to align their minds with God's truth for their own good. Here's how we saw this happen. We see false ideas, not true things, in the minds of those who are coming to Jesus, first in the form of his family. So a multitude comes together again. This is another way of saying that the crowd is swarming because someone you know, uh, like dropped a line on where Jesus was. It got leaked. He's over here at this house. Next thing you know, a whole crowd shows up again for more healing, for more ministry. Now, as is kind of typical of those coming to Jesus, they really have no concern for the well-being of Jesus. Their mindset is, how can I use him for what I need? So Jesus is ministering so much so that he's missing mealtime. And this is consistent with Jesus. Uh, even in the Gospel of John, he's like, the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, you've been really working hard to the Lord. You forgot to eat. You know, here's, have a Snickers or something. Like, aren't you hungry? And Jesus says, my food, first and foremost, is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish the work that he's given me. So we see that with Jesus. Like, he is so serving the Lord that he doesn't have a moment to eat. Um, the, the, the demands of ministry are pressing down upon him. It says that when his own people heard about this, the crowd swarming, Jesus not eating, I don't think that's really what it is. I don't think they're like, wait, we heard he's not eating. I don't think that's the issue. You have some of his own people who hear about these crowds being swarmed around Jesus, and they go out to lay hold of Jesus, and they're saying he's out of his mind. Now, let's back up for a second. Many scholars would agree, especially in the context here, that his own people is referring to his own household, his own family, maybe his former co-workers, right? And, and the scriptures tell us this, that a prophet is not without honor except in his own household, where you're familiar, where you're known. I mean, imagine this. The siblings of Jesus has, have always known Jesus as sibling Jesus. But now sibling Jesus is fulfilling the ministry that God is giving him, and he's doing a lot of things that in the eyes of his siblings look crazy, like drawing large crowds. That's one. Like if your sibling started doing that, you'd be like, you good? If your sibling all of a sudden tomorrow was like, you couldn't get to them because there was crowds around them. would be like, what's going on? What did you do? Did you like post a famous TikTok or something? Like, what happened? Now, beyond that, I mean, you think of Jesus and, and the way he's been behaving. He is standing up to the religious leaders of the day. He's not afraid of their system. He, he's not trying to, you know, be in cahoots with them so that he can keep control of things. He is representing the truth of God, and he is annoying people with that. And they're looking on at Jesus going, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, yeah, I know him. He's my brother. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're looking on at this. On top of that, so Jesus is drawing these large crowds. He's standing up to the Pharisees. He's making really bold claims about himself. Like he forgives sin and stuff like that. They're like, what? He forgives sin? Like, I need my brotherly sins forgiven by him for all the things I did to him growing up, right? Now, the last thing is, he's also, look at the 12, look at the guys he picked. That's crazy. Look at his disciples. Like, you could just imagine in their head, they're looking on, and this is usually how it is, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. And it's almost like, have you ever fallen into this with someone? Like, you've so known them that there's no opportunity for them to grow into who God's called them to be because you're so familiar with who they've been, so you peg them. You ever done that? Like, that's them. And that's something we got to ask God to help us do, like, as love believes all things. But imagine doing this with Jesus. 
They're so familiar with a different form of Jesus. And so they're looking on at him, and here's their, let's talk about being misaligned. By the way, when uh, this is an early Easter message. When Jesus rises from the dead, the Bible tells us that he appears to his brother James and his siblings. Isn't that awesome? He's like, guys. You know, his whole, you know, his whole ministry, like, who do you think you are, the Messiah? You know, and he's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm the Messiah. And it's funny because afterwards, James writes an epistle and he calls himself the bondservant of Jesus, by the way. Like, what would it take for you to go from being your sibling's brother or sister to being their servant? A miracle, right? Yeah, it's like a miracle, all right? Well, that's what it took for Jesus, the resurrection. So that's amazing. At this point, it's early, they're skeptical. They're living in a heart of unbelief, and their perspective of Jesus is not that he's Lord, but that he's loony. He's out of his mind. That's their perspective. It bears saying, let me say this, that you can expect to be, let me say this, profoundly misunderstood if you seek to follow God. Can I say that? Sometimes we're so afraid, I don't wanna be misunderstood, I want it to make sense to everybody. Well, you've gotta choose who you're gonna follow. Uh, oftentimes, faithfulness to God will look like foolishness to others. Have you found that yet? And people go, are you out of your mind? <laughs> Paul says in, in, in one of his epistles, he goes, if I'm out of my mind, it's for you. That's what he says. He goes, if I look crazy, just know it's for you, all right? But, but this is true, and this is what Jesus is experiencing. Now, you don't just have his family. At the next verse, you see the religious leaders misaligned with him. The scribes who came from Jerusalem, so stop there. Now, you have another group who's misaligned with Jesus. The first was his family. They're often the truth of who he is. And then you have the scribes. It says that they come down from Jerusalem. The idea here is like this is a religious group, a delegation that is investigating Jesus. They've been sent on behalf of the religious elites of Jerusalem to see what's going on with this Jesus guy. This is not the first time they've done it. And here they are again. And as they're coming to investigate, they come down from Jerusalem. And here's what they say about Jesus. And by the way, the word there they came and they said is they were continually saying this. Not once, but like this was, it was in their heart and they were saying it to every person they came in contact with. That's the tense. They were repeatedly saying that here's the deal, like what's the deal with this guy, Jesus? He's performing miracles. He's also really kind and loving and he looks a lot like God. What's up with him? And their explanation is they're telling everyone he has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. Now, um, not fun to say that word. I don't like that word, Beelzebub. I don't like who it draws attention to. I just, it also, it doesn't feel good on the mouth. You know, just saying, it's like, I don't like it, right? Beelzebub can literally be translated. There's, I'm sure you, how many of you guys have heard of this word before? You read this? It's an interesting Bible word to describe Satan. Beelzebub, a lot of di different ideas about this. It seems the most common interpretation of Beelzebub, it's literally Lord of the Flies. Um, so, so you've heard of that before? Lord of the flies? Of course you have, right? The idea is that he is, whoever this is, he is Lord over that which is vile and disgusting. He's Lord of the flies. Um, and we, we actually get an idea of who they're talking about here. They're talking about the ruler of demons. We know who this is. This is Satan. Um, scripture not only teaches us to have an understanding of a real personal being who is God, who's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the source of everything good. Scripture also leads us to have a healthy estimation and understanding of a real spiritual being on the other side named 
Lucifer, Satan, the ruler of demons. Uh, the Bible tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against darkness and, and powers of this age, demonic forces. Just as there is an, a holy angelic realm, there is an evil demonic realm. And they're at work each and every day to thwart God's purposes, enslave God's people, and destroy humanity. That's his goal, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. It's who he is. It's what he does. Um, and these scribes are saying that it's through this power of the devil, this Lord of that which is disgusting, it's, it's through that means that Jesus is doing what he's doing. Think about this. They're saying Jesus is possessed by the devil. That's what they're saying. You're possessed by the devil, and, and the power you have comes from the demons. Like, so notice that they don't deny Jesus' power. They can't deny the guy who used to be deaf and now he's hearing every word. They can't deny, there's so many stories. I mean, demons being casted out, like they can't deny the evidence or the power. So because they can't deny it, they're going to harden their hearts and they just can't accredit it to God because it doesn't fit in their religious box. So they got to make it something evil. They have to demonize it. They have to demonize it. And they say, this is the source of your power, which by the way, this is a, something that you see all throughout the scriptures. Um, there's more um, there's more to the world of spiritual power than just God. Do we know this? The Bible says test the spirit. Just because it's powerful doesn't mean it's of God. So the, at least they're right about that. What they got absolutely wrong, they're shooting at the wrong target though. Talk about not hitting the target. They're aiming the wrong direction. And they're attributing Jesus as one who is in cahoots with evil power to do what he's doing. Now, um, notice Jesus' response and it just builds into more epicness because that's just who Jesus is over the next verses. He called them to himself and he said to them in parables. Here's the first question he asked them, which is just like, let's start here, dummies, okay? How can Satan cast out Satan? How could he do that? Right? It's like, how could, how could he, in defeating him, you know, in, in trying to build his kingdom, destroy? Like, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, how could Tom Brady beat himself in the Super Bowl? It's like, it doesn't make sense if he's beating, you know, the other team, if he loses. So it's like, basic logic is like, that, that doesn't work. And then he goes on, and he says, well, here's a principle too. A kingdom divided against itself, it, it can't stand. We know this. Like, it's over for a kingdom. There's two ways, right, that a kingdom goes down. The outside or, we know this stuff, right, the inside. If, there, if civil war breaks out. Like, you don't even need people from the outside. If, if from the inside it starts to tear apart and gets more polarizing and divisive, then it's the end for that kingdom. So, you know, Satan is, is not God, but he's not stupid. He has, like, basic, wise, shrewd battle tactics. And, and then he goes on to say, and if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Speaking of the home environment. But, but, but also speaking of, too, like the dynasty of Satan, the house of Satan, the rule of Satan. And then he says, if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but hasn't. It, I imagine Jesus is like, why am I telling you this? Like, you should know this is like basic math, basic understanding. So, so, so Jesus is correcting. He's seeking to, to align them with what's true. But the first thing he has to do is call out how ridiculous their, their thoughts are and what their thinking is. And then he, notice this, then he says, here's what's really going on. Okay, that's not what's happening here. Satan's kingdom is not being destroyed from the inside. Satan's kingdom, Jesus says, here's what's really going on, and here's the truth of my ministry. Satan's kingdom is being toppled from the outside. 
The kingdom of Jesus is here pushing back against the kingdom of darkness. That's what's going on. With Jesus casting out demons, it's not Satan working against Satan. It's the kingdom of God overcoming the power of Satan. That's what's really going on here. Jesus says this. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. This is what Jesus is saying about himself. Jesus is saying, I'm not working for Satan. I'm working against him, and I'm here to bind him. So here in this context, what Jesus is saying is that Satan is the strong man. This is his dominion. Humanity has handed the title deed of earth to the enemy. We said, we want you to rule. We want to, go, we want to go your way instead of God's way from the very beginning. And we have granted him the power to rule over this dimension and this dominion. The only way that you could break in and overcome him is if you take down the strong man, the man at the top. It's not enough to just knock out a demon. you got to take out the, the guy at the top. Well, no one else has the power to do this except Jesus. So Jesus is the one who says, I, what I'm doing here is I'm breaking in the door and I'm binding Satan. I love this to take all his stuff. I'm doing a B&E here, all right? I'm doing a break and entering where I am plundering his goods by binding him. That's, that's by the way, that's part of the reason, that's part of the, the, the message of the gospel that Jesus came. It's to defeat Satan's kingdom through the power of his kingdom. All the hell and destruction here on earth, Jesus came to reverse that. Uh, let me say this. It's what Jesus is doing here by casting out demons and listen closely, it's what he will climatically do on the cross and the resurrection. This is what Jesus came to do. We've got to know this. We've we got to place the gospel not just in our Western situation, but into, the, into the, the universal spiritual battle that it takes place in. Um, Jesus says this in 1 John, or rather John writes this in 1 John 3. He says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's what Jesus came to do. This is aligning our minds with what's true about Jesus. This is who he is. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He's doing it here. He's going to continue to do it. And he, and he does it on the cross. I love what Paul says in Colossians. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you and I of all of our trespasses. How does he do this? He wiped out the handwriting of requirements that were against us. So there, there are a, a fat, there's a fat list of requirements okay, for you to be right with God. The problem is, because of your and my sin, sin nature, those requirements are against us. And it's what's kept us from a relationship with God. It's because of sin and breaking those laws and saying, God, I want my own space. I want my own way. Well, on the cross, notice this, God has wiped out those requirements because Jesus fulfills them for you and I. Thanks, God. Thanks be to God. And he has taken, notice this, it was contrary to, the, to us, and he's taken it out of the way nailing it to the cross. So like, if you walk around with a list of things that you've got to do to be right with God, you need to take that list in your mind and you need to nail it to the cross. And you need to say, Jesus already did this. He's already met the, if I'm living based on requirements, I'm not going to make it. I'm unqualified. I fall short. This list is contrary to me as a sinner. But through the gospel, Jesus fulfills that for you and I. He who knew no sin as righteous, he became sin on your and my behalf so that we could receive his righteousness. Now look what Paul goes on to say. In doing this, he disarmed principalities and powers. This is so cool. And Jesus made a public spectacle of them. Like, ha ha, loser. That's what he did. A public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. So, so this is still, by the way, how Satan can attack us, is he holds us up to who we're not. You ever done this? 
who I'm not, who I'm not living uh, you know, up to be, how I'm not being right enough, how I'm not fulfilling the list enough. And this is how Satan controls a lot of us and defeats a lot of us. Gets us caught up in religion where we, we try to keep the list and we're prideful about it. Or he just pounds us with shame when we don't keep the list. And that's one of his weapons, sin. And Jesus goes, it's no longer a weapon because I've made a spectacle over them on the cross. I've destroyed that weapon on the cross. Uh, it goes further in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews it says, Inasmuch as the children of Israel, or children, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same as a human, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So there's two weapons the enemy has, sin and death. And Jesus comes to bind the strong man on the cross. He comes to tie him up and to die on the cross for sinners like you and me so that we're no longer captive to sin. We're no longer captive to the power and the penalty of sin. We're no longer stuck in the hamster wheel of being good enough for God. And then he takes it a step further. There's this great event in the church calendar, Good Friday and Easter. You should really check it out. And at Easter, Jesus overcomes the grave, the second weapon of the enemy. Um, Jesus defeats, listen to this, Jesus defeats Satan through the resurrection the same way David defeats Goliath. How did David kill Goliath? Not with a slingshot. He cut Goliath's head off with his own sword. How did Jesus beat the devil? He used his own weapon against him. Jesus decapitates Satan through the resurrection. He uses his weapon of death that binds people through the fear of death and separation from God, and he overcomes death. The same way David killed Goliath. Now, I, this is like, I want to see this on your coffee mug. Can you make this, okay, and post it with your devotions in the morning? Paul says in Romans 16, 20 to the church, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Hang in there. The, I love this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ yeah, be with you. Amen. You know, it's like, okay, I love it. I love the truth and grace here. So, so this, is, this is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus has def is coming to destroy the works of Satan. He's doing it through his ministry on earth. He's going to climatically do it on the cross and resurrection. And there's a day coming where he will have an end. Or there will not be any sin or death or disease or cancer or loss, but only the rule and reign of Jesus. The victory of Jesus. Jesus wants us, listen closely, he wants to align our minds with this truth. Here's what he told the disciples. I'm not sure if this can relate to you today where you're at. He said, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is Jesus' way of saying, listen, don't fear when darkness is dark and it's all around you and it seems like it's winning and it seems like you're losing. Listen, through Jesus, you can overcome. Through Jesus, his victory becomes your victory. Don't settle for defeat. Why would you settle for defeat over a battle when Jesus has already won the war? He's victorious. That's what we celebrate. We need to align our minds with that truth. Even as a church, like going forward, it feels like the dark cloud of darkness is getting darker and thicker by the day. It seems like ministry is, is getting harder and harder to do. I mean, Paul talks about being ready in season and out of season. He talks about times of life and ministry where sometimes it's in season. Like, look at all the fruit. Everything's awesome. Everybody's open to the gospel. 
And then there's times where it's like we're, we're feeding the whole family to, to the lions. That, that was Paul's time. Out of season. It's like that escalated quickly, right? And we're certainly in a time where it feels like more and more we're in an out of season time where darkness is getting thick, but our hope today is the same hope we've had before. It's the same hope we started this church with. Jesus is stronger than darkness. Jesus in the face of darkness is always victorious. And so we march on. Last two ideas. These are quick ones. Jesus also aligns our hearts with his spirit. So he aligns our minds with his truth. He wants us to know the truth of who he is, especially in the face of darkness, especially in the face of the face of darkness, which is the enemy. And he wants to align our minds to know who Jesus is in that battle. The Pharisees thought he was working for the devil. How, how lost can you be? Jesus was certainly working against him, overcoming his kingdom. Jesus takes us a step further, and we see him begin to talk about a lack of alignment with these guys, not just with the truth, but with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, the messenger and minister of the Godhead who's at work in the world today. God himself, the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men. It's the first thing he says. Aren't you thankful for that verse, by the way? Do you have some sins? I got like all sins, you know what I'm saying? I got them all. Is there a sin that you have not allowed the blood of Jesus to cleanse you of? I mean, what, like, is, there's the gospel in a couple words. All sins will be forgiven. That thing that you've done that you go, Jesus, will, all sins will be forgiven. That's the hope of the gospel. With the shedding of Jesus' blood, there's no sin so evil that God cannot and won't forgive, except, here we go, right? But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, notice this, never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Like, this will mess with our theology a little bit, right, if we're not careful. All sins can be forgiven. Oh, great. Except this one. Wait, all or just except that one? Okay. The, jet, the rule, and then you have an exception. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand who the Holy Spirit is. Um, the Holy Spirit, here in this passage, is the one who's ministering in such a way that he's bringing people to Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's what he always does. That's, that's his goal for you, is not to make you feel good, but to bring you to Jesus. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's always up to, okay? Like, so when we say we want the Holy Spirit in our church, what we're saying is we want less of us and more of Jesus. We want more of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is teaching here, and actually he, he talks about this in John 15. I'll show you, the, show you it here. He says, when the helper comes whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he says, he will testify of me. That's what the Spirit's up to. Always bringing attention to Jesus. Let me show you one more verse. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says this. I love this. Paul says, no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And this is really interesting. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, um, if you can say right now, if you can say from your heart, if you could say this, Jesus is Lord. Genuinely, not like you don't have to say it, okay? Like, if you can say that, though, if that's true of your heart, if you can say that Jesus is Lord, if you go, Jesus is Lord, I'm not. Every knee will bow and tongue confess to the glory of Jesus, he is Lord. If you can say that, you have the Holy Spirit to thank. <laughs> 
He is the one that's brought you to that acknowledgement. He is the one that's enlightened your eyes to see that truth. It's how we come to faith in the knowledge of Jesus. So, so what Jesus is teaching is this, and this is what the Bible teaches. To receive the, to receive the gospel, to receive Jesus in truth, to be aligned with who he is, to receive his forgiveness, to receive what he's done, is to receive the Holy Spirit. You've received the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, to reject Jesus, I'm not even saying to call him the devil. I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying to reject him, which is done even by Christians in a certain way. But to reject, let's say, the ministry and the gospel of Jesus is to reject the Holy Spirit. It's to reject the ministry he's trying to produce. Now, here in this passage, when Jesus talks about something called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what Jesus is describing is, listen closely, the furthest extent of a life that has positioned itself in defiant hostility towards God. This is the furthest extent of a life who has defied God in hostility towards God and has experienced and had in their heart a persistent rejection of what the Spirit of God is doing in and through Jesus. It's the extent of someone who has so rejected Jesus ongoing and continually, persistently, that they've been in hostility toward him to the point that they do something called blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Like, growing up in church, I remember read, like, hearing this and being like, oh my gosh, am I, am I, did I do that? Have I ever done that? I hope I haven't done that. I can't get saved now. Like, this, like um, the idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, again, it's somebody that has turned their heart so far away from God. The word blasphemy literally means to speak a word against. And, and it's a specific sin, by the way, that flows out of a heart posture that, by the way, will never be forgiven because this heart wants nothing to do with forgiveness. So they blaspheme. They speak, it's, by the way, it's what the, the, the scribes are doing here. They're speaking against the ministry of the Spirit in word. We see this in our culture, by the way, in like lesser forms where what's evil is called good. And you speak against what's good and you call it evil. Like that's more and more common. It's harder to preach the gospel in a world where morality is so fluid. The worst extent of this is displayed here in the passage where you have these religious leaders. Listen to what they do. Their hearts are so hard against Jesus, probably because he's toppling their religious system and the control they have and the power they have. They're so in defiant hostility against him that when they they have before them the supremely good one, they have Jesus before them. And they call the supremely good one. There's no one as good as Jesus. And they call him evil. That's blasphemy. To call the Holy Spirit unholy and unclean. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's rooted in, listen, it's rooted in a heart, again, that's in opposition towards God and wants nothing to do with God. And and what Jesus is seeking to do here in their minds is align their hearts with with God's Spirit. Now, uh, like, when I think about our church in this next year, okay, I, I just got to say, like, I'm super relieved to not have any concern that our issue this year is, like, we can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, okay? Don't, like, I don't believe that's the big sin we're struggling with if you've opened up your heart to Jesus. Um, but there is another command in Scripture for the church, and it's for Christians in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, and it says this, don't, we can still quench the Spirit. 
So when I think about this next year and in in, in the life of our church and where he's brought us and where he wants to bring us, can we just hear this command from God right from his word for Solus Church? For your life, if you're a part of this church, what God is calling Solus to in this year, in 2022 and beyond, is to be a church that says, come Holy Spirit. We don't want to stifle you. We don't want to quench you. Isn't it easy with church stuff to quench the Holy Spirit? Isn't it easy as a Christian with religious stuff to check the box and do everything in the flesh without the Holy Spirit? A.W. Tozer talked about a day where what if God were to remove the Holy Spirit from the church? He said, would anybody notice? Have we so built our ministry on programs and on feelings and on moods and on environments? It's like, well, Holy Spirit, we'll call you if we need you. What, What kind of thought is that though, right? We're nothing without the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is nothing without the Holy Spirit. You're called to a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And this is the difference between just going through the motions and actually knowing God and knowing the Holy Spirit. Like just this morning, I had that thing happen to me where I had that, you ever had that like thing, like you gotta do this thing, you ever had that? And and it it would have entailed me, it was a good thing by the way, and it would have entailed me doing a U-turn, which is like, well then clearly it's not God if I have to make a U-turn. I'm gonna be late for our pre-service prayer meeting, you know? And then I got the second like, and the Lord's like, hey, if you're going to teach on not quenching the spirit, maybe you shouldn't do it. So. And it's just been one of those like, funny weeks for me, too. Um, I don't want to preach myself here. I want to preach Christ. But just if I could just give a testimony. Um, this has been a week where it's interesting, like coming up to our fourth birthday, sensing all that God is doing. and It was a weird week. So uh, Friday... I was riding my new bicycle. I got a new bicycle. It goes fast. And a fly flew into my eyeball. Okay? You can't tell. If you thought that I'm like really emotional, by the way, in the sermon and I'm crying, it's my eye problem. Okay? Just so you know. Um, and it was really irritating. It was really difficult for me. I, we were already sensing. So, and I like, I, like, anybody like this? I hate eye issues. Like, if I even have like a little eyelash, like, I just start, I like, it, like the, I become the worst person, okay? Um, so it was really like messing with me. I don't know. Stupid things like that mess with me, especially like a weekend like this. Last year at, at, at uh, our birthday party, I couldn't make it because I had COVID. And so I was like, God, I'd really like to be at Solis's birthday party. I'd really like to be there. And so this fly goes into my eye. Um, I'm studying last night. This is not a joke. I'm studying last night. And um, I'm studying, and a fly flies into my throat as I'm studying. I'm not even kidding you. And I start freaking out. The Lord tells me, Andrew, you're teaching on Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. Uh, Now, the Holy Spirit revealed this to me last night. The enemy doesn't like when you talk about him and you you expose his schemes. Like, I've never had a fly fly into my throat or my eye, let alone the same two days. And it is funny because of how weird it is. I get that. But just this morning, here's what I'm reminded of as the Holy Spirit is then ministering. Like, if you sense a darkness over you right now, don't let the darkness win. The Holy Spirit's upon you. If you're a child of God, you have his spirit. And I'm learning to remember this, that there is a real spiritual world out there that you are engaged with, whether you know it or not. 
We're called to a life of the Holy Spirit. And just even in my past couple days, I sense both the darkness of the enemy and the invitations of the Holy Spirit. And I want to be a person. I want to be a Christian, not even a pastor. I just want to be a guy that chooses the Holy Spirit. When the flesh is calling you into temptation, choose the Holy Spirit. When you get that prompt and you go, that's ridiculous. Why would I share that with them? I need that. Choose the Holy Spirit. What would that be like for our church if we just said, like, we're not here to do religious games. We're here to, like, really say, God, we want all that you have for us. What would be better than that as a community? So we invite your Holy Spirit. Listen, I'm not even going to teach the last point because there's delicious Cuban food out there. But this is where I think it's great to close, right? I'll invite Ben and and Jessica to come up to close us in that song. The last thing we see Jesus doing is aligning lives with God's will. So he, he wants to align our minds with his truth, the truth of who he is, that we would see him rightly in the face of darkness. He wants to align our hearts with his spirit. There's a spiritual battle going on. And the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. That's what God promised. I will pour out my spirit. All you have to do is ask for me. You want more, all you need is more of God, that desire for more of God. And he wants to pour out his spirit upon you. It's actually a command in Ephesians 5. Paul commands the church to be filled with the spirit. It's a command. Be filled. Be continually filled. We're leaky vessels. The good news is God gives free refills. All right? Be filled with the spirit. And then lastly, you have the case with Jesus' family. And they're, they, they have their own will for Jesus, don't they? Which is, and if you read it, remember you read this? They think he's crazy, and their plan is we need to confine him. We need to physically extract him. We need to bind him. And we need to put him in a straitjacket and keep him from doing what he's doing. They had their own will. And so they come to where Jesus is. They're standing outside. They call to him. The multitude's sitting around him. They go, Jesus, look, your mama and your, your bros, and they're outside. They're looking for you. They're there to bind Jesus because they think he's going crazy. They have their own will. And Jesus answers them and says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? And he looked around in a circle at those said about him. And he said, here is my family. Here are my mothers and here are my, oh, here's my mother and here are my brothers. Whoever does not their own will, that's not a Christian. One of the markers of the church is a group of people who are there for the will of God. You have, what a contrast with Jesus' family. They have their own will for Jesus. And Jesus goes, no, no, my true family is the community of those that say, when I do it my way and I live according to my will, it goes wrong. I'm going to present myself. Here's the the church. Here's us into the future. Jesus, we're yours. We give our lives to your good and perfect and pleasing will. Help us die and deny ourselves. Maybe right now you're in a season where you go, I need to crucify my will and submit it and surrender it to the will of God. It could be with big things and big decisions. God, what's your will? Help me put my will under your will and say your will be done. It could be in daily life. It could be a general heart posture that says, God, here's a Christian. I've surrendered myself and my life as a vessel for your will. Use me. God, use our church for your will. Get us out of the way so that you can bring us forward. That's what it looks like to be aligned with God. Amen.